Are you ready to be the change you want to see in the world? Are you ready to make choices that have a positive impact on your daily life, your community, and the planet? You are in the right place. I'm Anne-Therese Janeri. And I'm Robin Shaw. And this is the Hate Change Podcast. This episode is dedicated to the Black Farmer Fund. Did you know that the roots of regenerative agriculture, organic farming, and the farm-to-table movement grew from the work of Black farmers like Dr. Booker T. Watley and Dr. George Washington Carver? And yet today, Black farmers are highly underrepresented in farming and farm ownership. It's important that we look at how our food system in North America is built upon land theft and the exploitation of Black and brown labor, and at the same time, Black and brown communities are disproportionately affected by food apartheid and the damaging effects of climate change. The Black Farmer Fund supports a thriving, resilient food economy, repairing Black communities' relationship to food and land. Hey Change podcast listeners, you are invited to join us in supporting the Black Farmer Fund. A donation of any size supports and strengthens the economic infrastructure of Black food businesses and helps to build community power through a reparative capital framework. Check the show notes or go to blackfarmerfund.org to learn more. Let's support a more fair, equitable, and regenerative world by supporting Black farmers today. Kiani Conley Wilson is a grower, activist, and organizer based in Troy, New York. She is passionate about environmental justice, anti-racist, pro-feminist organizing, and the power of food across cultures, economies, and environments. Having conducted research with the School for Field Studies on ecotourism, biology, food, and culture in Panama and Costa Rica, her passion for food justice led her to consult for Series Inc., on global food deforestation and agricultural human rights issues, and work on the program management team for the Research Foundation with the motto, Enhancing Community Health. Kiani currently organizes with local organizations to develop people-centered systems and spaces. She is the Community Empowerment Coordinator for Soulfire Farm, which is an Afro-Indigenous-centered community farm committed to uprooting racism and seeding sovereignty in the food system. We had the honor of speaking with Kiani about how we can support BIPOC farmers and decolonize our minds. This is such a powerful conversation and anyone interested in sustainability, environmentalism and low waste living will learn a lot about how to make their advocacy and daily lives more intersectional. Let's dive in. Kiani, it's so awesome to have you on the podcast today. We're so looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I would love to just jump right in about Soul Fire Farm, the work that is going on and how you are involved. Yeah, absolutely. So um, at Soul Fire Farm, we, uh, our mission is to um, dis- dismantle racism in the food system while also providing food for folks um, living under food apartheid and providing resources and training for the next generation of food activists. Um, and my role right now is the, um, I always forget, we just changed the name. Um, so my role is the community empowerment coordinator. So what that means is that I do a lot of programming that um, impacts the community like Soul Fire in the city where we're building waste beds in people's backyards. Um, 
providing training for folks and also helping out with any of our programming, like uprooting racism in the food system. Amazing. And where are you located? I'm located in Troy, New York, um, but the farm is about 30 minutes up the road um, in Grafton, Petersburg, New York. Awesome. And you're also doing projects in the city? Yeah. Yeah. So I actually uh, recently announced my uh, campaign for City Council of Troy in District 5. Um, And I'm also doing a lot of work with the Troy Democratic Socialists of America, doing a lot of work focusing on housing. Um, And I also run my own community garden in North Central Troy, which is a neighborhood that often gets overlooked um, and not really prioritized by the city. For anyone who has no idea what this is, can you explain what food apartheid even is? Because I I, kind of know, but I don't really know exactly what that is. Absolutely. So at Soul Fire Farm, we like to use the term food apartheid instead of food desert because it kind of lets you know that it's it's not a natural phenomenon. It's something that's really um, targeted at Black, poor, and Latinx and other uh, communities of color. So it's really putting an emphasis of like, this is like a man-made kind of disparity that we're going through. And it's an issue that we can, we can address by, um, you know, making sure that um, the neighborhoods that are most vulnerable are have access, not only just access, but having, being able to afford fresh, healthy, nutritious food that's also culturally relevant. So things that they cook with and all that. Can we go a little deeper into that? Cause it's so just to feel like for, for, for people who have a hard time imagining what that mm-hmm. looks like, you know, would that be, you know, areas where, you know, you can only go to a bodega where there's really no fresh fruit? Is that, is that the kind of like the day-to-day yeah. experience? Yeah, it can also be like, I know when I lived in North Central Troy, like it was really hard for me to get food. Um, the convenience store that was like right across the street shut down, even though they said it was because there wasn't enough revenue coming in. But oftentimes, like I never went to that store and it was empty. And the only other store was the Family Dollar. So it's a lot of like processed food, like cereal, snacks, chips, all that kind of stuff. It doesn't really provide any nutritional value. So I had to hop on, I didn't have a car yet. So I had to hop on a bus for about like 30 minutes when you like kind of factor in all the stops and all of that. And then shop at a store that really didn't have a lot of, so in our area, we kind of have two different, we have one chain that kind of has like a nice version, like, and then they have like kind of like a, a less nice version less sparkly and clean and um, nice. So we had the less nice version. Um, and that supermarket actually closed down recently, like about like a couple months after I moved out of that neighborhood. So it looks like, you know, not being able to get to the grocery store and also not having like the options that you might want as well. Yeah. And I'm imagining that this, the the reality of food apartheid today mm-hmm is coming from the history of redlining and you know of course before that like the colonialism and apartheid genocide you know the the unfortunate you know white supremacy that has been just taken hold of the world in such a disastrous way but i'm imagining that kind of the the reasons why certain stores will be in certain areas is is tied to the history of of redlining is that true yeah, absolutely. I can imagine that's true as well. Um, like I know, like, for example, Trader Joe's, like they won't um, open in like lower income na- neighborhoods. They, they typically um, decide to go into like affluent neighborhoods already. 
which is such a shame because they're an affordable food option and they have organic options and all the things that, you know, everybody should have access to. Absolutely. And folks, I, I know when I was younger, uh, when I first became a vegetarian, my mom would be like, all right, let's go to Trader Joe's. They have like everything you need. So um, yeah, making sure that folks have uh, access to that. And I think something that we're doing at Soul Fire is we have our um, solidarity shares. That's what we have at Soul Fire. So um, those those are basically once a week during the growing season, we'll, we'll give folks a bag of groceries that from the farm like typically it has like eggs and all the different vegetables and things that we grow on the farm and maybe some herbs as well and value value added products like pasta sauce and things like that for free folks and previously we had a csa where folks of higher incomes could pay more for the csa and then folks of lower incomes could either just pay what they could essentially and so having systems like that where food is kind of directly going from farmer to consumer is really important as well. Yeah, and I feel like so many people forget. We talk about, you know, having, like choosing the right foods and making good choices for your body and your family and empowering yourself through the healthy eating habits you can have. And like, we kind of always say, like, it's in your own choice, in your own power to choose what you eat. But for so many people, that's not the case. Because if you can't choose healthy foods because they literally do not exist where you live, then you're actually so disempowered. And I think, for someone who is used to being able to walk into a Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or any sort of store, whether it's an organic section and they have like all sorts of different variety to even imagine, you know, a situation where that is not the case is so hard. Right. And that is unfortunately the truth for so many Americans. Um, besides just the consumer part, because I know you guys work a lot, too, with the whole farmer side of things. And so mm-hmm. how would you see like the needs for black or brown farmers are like differ from white farmers? Like, is there a something is there a gap we need to know about or like what is something that you educate on soul fire farm yeah so um i think it's like less than one percent of uh farms across the nation are owned by black black people and i think it's like something like 90 or something might be more of farms that are owned by white folks and wow. the reason for that is not because there are black farmers that don't want to farm but a lot of the it's a lot of historical racism USDA really wouldn't give out loans to black farmers and mm-hmm. other farmers of color um, and would give these loans out to white farmers. And I think that was especially prevalent in the in the Depression era where um, a lot of folks were losing their land and a lot of white folks were getting forgiveness and all that, whereas black farmers, they really got their land taken from them. So that's like a huge gap in terms of like having access to land. And then there's also just like how profitable farming is. Farming is not very profitable, especially when you're not doing a lot of these conventional farming and all that. So that's also like a barrier as well. And when you say conventional farming, um, like is, the, is that, are, are, is Soul Fire Farm doing like regenerative farming or how, how does that differ from than conventional farming? If you can explain that. Absolutely. We do a whole lot of regenerative farming and a lot of regenerative farming actually comes from black agrarians. So um, think like Booker T. Washington and Dr. George Washington Carver, like they really did a lot of things like CSAs, Black farmers really did invent and really promote. George Washington Carver is known for like loving peanuts, uh, but legumes are actually really great at restoring nutrients and nitrogen into the soil, which is like something that basically every plant needs. 
and also, uh, you know, the extension schools that you see in different counties um, that uh, around agriculture. Booker T. Washington used to have um, a little cart that would go to the most like busted up, not functioning well farms and really fix them up. And that's kind of what our extension schools are based off of. Like, you know, you, you get to get help from folks, from the experts and they make your, your farms really good. So there's a lot of like, a lot of times when you think of like regenerative farming, you, you think like white people, but there's a lot of really great things that black people over the history uh, of, you know, everything, like Cleopatra with the, with the, uh, with composting worms and all that. Like there are just so, so many great black agrarians who have really contributed to regenerative farming which I had no idea about, by the way. Every time you read about it, it's like, it feels like it's very, it has like this white filter on top of it. Yeah. Uh, and it's too bad. I feel like I need to study more and just dive deeper. And because you want to know the whole culture and the whole history behind it. Um, and something that I love about farming too, just in general, I think it's so empowering, right? Because it, it does come back to food sovereignty. It comes back to getting the nutrients you need because you know you're growing it in your own soil. And like, it just gives some sort of, freedom and I, freedom that was taken away because farmers were not given loans or black farmers were not giving permission to continue their farms. And it's so important that we, you know, keep working and keep helping uh, make sure that that's no longer the case. What would you say to someone who, who wants to help support black farmers and regenerative farming who may not be in the field, just like anyone listening, a consumer, like what's, what's the way that anyone can help? Yeah, um, so there's the Black Farmer Fund, which is working to ensure uh, Black farmers have resources. So I would definitely check out that. There are a whole bunch of resources on our website, soulfirefarm.org. If you're into reading, I really recommend Leah Peniman's book, Farming While Black. It's great for even like older farmers, newer farmers, folks who have never like touched soil. Um, it's really great and really breaks down like just about any question you could have. That's awesome. I would also say, because we started our little veggie garden last summer, we moved from New York and up to the country in Massachusetts. And my husband goes, we need to have a garden. So we just kind of like winged it and like, let's see if something comes up. And a lot of things came up and it was just such a fun experience. Um, and it's not like, obviously it was so luxurious to just walk out and pick up our groceries for that, whatever I was cooking that night. Um, but then also I do, you just gain so much respect for, for farmers. And I feel like even if you're not going to grow everything yourself, having something little, like even just a tomato plant or something. So you get to like grow respect for, for farming and for nature and for the whole, like basically science that goes into like growing food. I think then you just, you see food from a different lens and you will automatically start uh, supporting and helping the farmers out there. There are in your local community. Um, I just want to kind of say that because I feel like just coming back and like slowing down and getting closer to, to soil and to nature and to like the beautiful dirt that's like right beneath us. Right. It's, it's such a healing experience in my opinion. Do, do you want to talk on that too? Like how have you felt since you kind of entered the farming world? Absolutely. I think you, you really uh, hit the nail on the head in terms of like everything, like plants are so resilient. Like it's insane about like how resilient they really are. Um, I remember last season, I had like an eggplant and I was so excited. I was like, yes, my plant is my eggplant and we're going to get this eggplant. Um, Cause I really love, um, I love, I love eggplant. And I, I come back to my garden and I'm like, oh no, there's it's, something's been eating my plants, specifically the eggplant. There was like one little sad leaf on it. And um, I put some chicken wire around the bed and I came back maybe like a couple weeks later. And, you know, I had like an eggplant. It wasn't quite ripe. I was like, wow, like, I really didn't think like this guy was going to make it, but he really did. 
And I think that's also like kind of representative of like mental health. Like, you know, you might not think you're, you're gonna, you might feel like discouraged and um, upset or like really like you only have one, one leaf left, left, but you know, if you take some time, kind of let yourself be, oftentimes you'll, you'll bloom and have lots of fruit to harvest. And yeah, I really feel, um, I, I'm like really struggling right now because it's like, I want my hands in the dirt, but the ground is frozen. And I, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, the season, but I definitely feel like my spirit is a bit uh, heightened and I, I get real excited during the growing season. And also just that like physical work of, gro- of gardening really um, helps me out a lot because I don't really, I don't do much like running and exercise. So um, that's, that's where I do most of my exercise. I love that. I love that metaphor that you use, you know, for mental health, because I think right now, especially, you know, with the pandemic and it being winter, I mean, I know that I definitely like am predisposed to depression, anxiety and different things. So having that reminder of like, it's okay to feel like you have one leaf left and just how resilient and amazing, like the life energy that is in us that can help us to bloom. I think that's so beautiful. Thank you for for sharing that. That's awesome. Um, I'm also curious about the land reparations initiatives that Soul Fire Farm is doing. How does that work? Yeah, so we have a couple different things going on. So there's uh, NIFOC, Northeast Farmers of Color. They have a reparations map, which you can find on our website and on their website as well. And the the kind of idea behind that is like, okay, the U.S. government isn't really taking any initiative on reparations. So let's like start it ourselves for now. So uh, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color, farmers and growers, and yeah, farmers and growers, they can register as in in need of reparations and kind of explain what they need. And then uh, other people like white folks and other folks that want to give reparations can um, look up on the map and kind of be like, okay, what's, what's going on in my area where I can help and support? In addition to that at Soul Fire Farm, we also um, have been working with the Munsee-Bohawken tribe, who were the original stewards of the land that we have. So we've been working with them with a cultural easement so they can come onto the farm at any time that they want. We were on about 80 acres, about like, I think like five acres we use for like farming and all that. And the rest of it is just um, land that we don't really touch and kind of wet heel and unless there's like invasive species, then we kind of try and do something about that. But um, so they have like full access to the land whenever they want. And they also help us figure out what, what things we're growing. And um, we, we definitely grow some stuff for them. Like we, we grew this really beautiful like black corn um, last season and um, ship that all over to them. So like save those seeds and all that. That to me is so fascinating because I'm myself, I'm just so intrigued and interested in native culture. What, what, are, what are a few things that they've taught you? Like, what have you learned from working with them? Yeah, I remember we had a, um, a call with Stephanie Morningstar, who I don't know if she's still the executive director of uh, NIFO, but she was at the time. And she was talking about COVID and um, kind of, it, it was like a perspective I didn't really think about where it was like, you know, COVID is a living being as well. And um, kind of figuring out how can we live with COVID um, and, and kind of have our needs met and all that. And I was like, oh, that's, I didn't really think of COVID. I, I mean, it's like kind of a virus. So it's like 
kind of living, kind of not when you get into the nitty-gritty science of it. But I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting. So a lot of just like openness and trying to really connect with different living things in ways that you might not have thought of before. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like COVID is something that we have something to learn from. Like I'm, I'm a big believer in like things happen for a reason and we're here to learn and to grow and to love. So it's not some accident that, you know, we have this global pandemic. There's a reason why we've had to hit the pause button and slow down. And Andres and I have talked about how it's, you know, there's a, a large element of needing to step back and assess what has been done in the past and that we don't want to return to normal because nor- the, you know, the, the normal of the past was not working. There were so many people who are marginalized for so many reasons that ultimately, you know, as a, as a human, it doesn't make sense to have any forms of oppression for other people, for animals, for the land. So having an opportunity to step back and pause. Um, and it's also not easy. <laughs> it's not easy to, to be honest and, you know, do a reckoning of, of what's going on. But um, the work that Soulfire Farm is doing is incredible. It's so, it's so incredibly inspiring. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you mentioned one thing that I, I realized, I actually don't know what, what it is. You talked about um, CSAs. Mm-hmm. What is that? Oh, so that's a community supported agriculture. Um, so that means you kind of pay up front or you pay by month. If you pay up front, it's really great for the farmer because that means they don't have to go into debt and to, to make sure like they have all the supplies and resources that they need. But essentially uh, the way that we're doing it now is we, we hand deliver everything. But in previous years, we kind of had like spots, like maybe like churches or someone's porch and folks would kind of pick that up. But yeah, it's just like a month. It's like a subscription almost. It's like Netflix for veggies. So some of our um, <laughs> TSA members have called it that before. So that's, that's essentially what that is. That's amazing. That's awesome. We actually have my husband's sister is a member or sisters. They all are subscribers. Uh, we will be this year too, but it's so nice. Like we have a new CSA box and we just come over. We all just pick and choose. And it's just like a plethora of beautiful veggies. You never know exactly what you're getting, but it's just a fun game kind of. I love it. It's so brilliant. Yeah. One of my good friends, she she like loves the CSAs because she's like, you never know what you're going to cook that week, but the veggies will tell you what you're going to cook and you might get creative with it. The veggies will tell you. Oh, I like that. It's like, <laughs> give them a voice. <laughs> it's such a different way to think about it than, you know, being able to, you know, for, for those who are privileged enough to have access to everything in a grocery store where you can go and have a million options as opposed to this is what the land was offering right now. This is what's ripe. This is what's in season. This is what's available. And to, to cook that way. I mean, it seems like it would also be such a community building experience to be part of that because, you know, grocery shopping, it's like, you know, you kind of wave or smile or go around people and that's it. And it feels like we're all so separate in our little boxes, cooking our own little meals in our own little houses. And we don't have enough opportunity or we don't take opportunity to be more in community together. Yeah, absolutely. And and something that we kind of had to pause during 2020 was uh, having our community farm day for, you know, hundreds of people used to come to the farm and help out and help grow and harvest the food. Um, now now we have much smaller work and learn days where it's about like no more than 10 people, I'd say, come. But that, that's also like a part of like community building as well that we do. I was listening to, um, I forget the gentleman's name, but he was speaking about the uh, I think it's called the Peace Garden that's in Philadelphia about 
um, fence-free food forests is what he was talking about. It was just like, my mind just went, cause it's like, oh my gosh, to not put a fence around your food and have it be this communal exchange. That's amazing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that, that's kind of like one of my goals for Common Greens, my community garden in North Central Troy is, you know, I, I saw all these community gardens popping up, which are really great, but a lot of them had fences or locks around them. And I was like, you know, like, I want to, I want to make, make a change in Troy. And I don't need to grow food for like, I don't need to grow food for my substance and um, for a living necessarily. Um, but just providing a resource for folks and a lot of uh, kids on the block get real excited when they see me come up and they're like oh my god he's here and he gets to get dirty and all that so I definitely think there's a lot of power in community food as well. Yeah since you brought up kids um, this is usually Robin's question because she's a mother <laughs> but I will ask you because I love kids as well like what are ways that we can you know help parents start raising children that are more so they're more connected to the land like how can we make it more accessible for parents and for kids and for families to feel like they do actually have a connection because I feel like what Robin just said you walk to the store and just grab grab something in a plastic package and you don't even know where it's coming from and it feels like you have such a detachment but at the same time it's like well with my life and my work and like how am I even supposed to get started like what would you say to someone who is a parent or maybe thinking of becoming one yeah, I would say, um, and this is really great because we have a wonderful mother, or we have several mothers on the team, but one that really comes to mind is Azare, who just joined our team this year, and she has these kids that, like, they, any vegetable you, you ask them if they like, they'll be like, yeah, I love that, what are you talking about, like, I grew that, um, so that's really a way where you can get kids involved and engaged, kids love getting their hands dirty, I also love getting my hands dirty, and um, if you have the space, starting a garden in your backyard would be really great. If you don't, you can even do a container garden. Um, seeds are pretty, like, you can get them for a couple dollars at the store. Um, and also, if you have the means, traveling to, like, more open spaces, um, trying to make that a regular um, pattern in their, like, upbringing really helps uh, get folks connected to the land as well. Yeah, I love how you say just like starting something small, because I feel like there is such a mental barrier of like, I can't be a gardener, I can't grow food. And then you realize all it takes is to watch one YouTube video, because there's so many, right? <laughs> it's like, how do I grow a tomato? I did that last summer, by the way. It's like things to think about. And then it's just something like you feel like a child again, you're like, I'm growing this, I'm seeing it come out of the soil. Like, it's something so incredibly healing with watching that whole process and then feeling like you're part of it. Like you actually feel like, wow, I'm part of the cycle of life. I am creating, if you specifically, if you're using um, compost to like nurture your soil, like, wow, what used to be my food waste now is something that becomes nurturing for more life. Right. And like, you start to see how like this makes sense. Um, so yeah, I would just encourage anyone who's listening, like, if you live in an apartment in the city and all you can create is like this one little pot of a plant or just like a little bit of some herbs or something like it is you start there and you will get you just get you going because I think it's like the first step into being more in tune with nature it's like like nothing else so thank absolutely. you absolutely and I want to also emphasize I have killed a lot of plants and it's okay <laughs> yeah. to kill plants and it doesn't mean like you're bad at it or you'll, you'll never be better at it um it's okay to kill plants, uh, but sometimes they come back even and they surprise you. So, um. well, actually, so as you were talking earlier, this is something that came to me, and I just watched a film called Sacred Cow, and this was a theme that was kind of reoccurring. So, the whole idea and concept around 
death and life. And we kind of talked about a little bit with COVID, you know, like the indigenous people having a much healthier relationship maybe to the cycle of life and death and, you know, how that plays a part. I think we're so afraid of it. Um, And having been vegan for many years myself, I'm kind of transitioning into more like a more open-minded mindset. Um, But, you know, we're so afraid of any sort of death, but we almost get like so narrow-minded but like, I think one of the examples in the film was like, well, there are slugs and they're eating all our, like all my lettuce and I, I can't, I don't have a heart to kill the slugs, but then they're going to kill my lettuce. And then she went to the store and she's like, I can't deal with that. Like I'm too sensitive to, to kill anything kind of life. So I'm going to just go buy the lettuce in the store. And she's like, well, who am I fooling? Obviously the farmers who grew this has killed their slugs. You have to sometimes just kind of be part of the cycle is what I'm trying to say. And I think coming to terms with that and like better understanding, you know, how it all kind of like interplays. Um, I think it's just something that we've been detached from for so long that we need to kind of find our way back to. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think, and I think there's like a lot of examples in a lot of different cultures. Like I know um, Leah um, like kind of shares a a similar um, spirituality and idea where it's like, you know, everything's connected and everything has a place. I think is how she typically describes it. And, um, you know, we've, we've had like a really hard um, experience with bowls. Um, even though the, even though there was probably a couple a couple feet of snow on the farm, uh, they're still at it and still, still trying to um, attack our uh, trees and all of that. So, uh, you know, sometimes it takes like a, a lot of creative thinking and and Justin who, who's our livestock manager was like oh like you know I, I just I would just stop on those like it's fine um and yeah so we've we've been trying to protect the trees and making sure that they're safe and all of that but yeah there's definitely like a lot of there's there's a lot of barriers and, and problems you'll, you'll face that you wouldn't necessarily think of like when you start growing food and it, it's a struggle sometimes <laughs> the first time I ever grew food was in Brooklyn and I grew a tomato plant and I successfully procured two cherry tomatoes from the <laughs> <laughs> and I was so excited and Justin made so much fun of me because I didn't know you're supposed to prune it back and it just grew and grew and grew and then put all of its energy into height instead of producing Last year, I grew tomatoes again because we're in the country now. I grew it on my balcony and the squirrels decimated. We had so many beautiful tomatoes and I just had to laugh and say like, this was a gift for the squirrels and for myself and my son, Caden, to practice. (laughs) But it gives you such an appreciation. I mean, every time I sit down to a meal now, like I always, my family is spiritual and we always would say grace before a meal. And it was just sort of this habitual thing that I would do as a kid. It's like, you do the thing with your parents, whatever. Okay. You eat cool. Thanks. And now when I say grace with my son, I'm like, how many hands have touched each item that's on my plate? How much time and energy and tending went into our food. And it, for me, it kind of comes back to, you know, we had, we had posted one of the questions that we wanted to talk about is like decolonizing our minds that, you know, land theft, abuse, enslavement, there's so many challenges that are part of our history, but how can we decolonize our minds and our relationship with our food and with each other? Yeah, I think something that a lot of folks don't really think about is just just starting a conversation, just just asking, like, let's say you get a CSA asking your, far- asking your farmer, like, hey, like, 
who his hands touch this. Like I'd love to meet or, or talk to or know about uh, the folks who are actually like harvesting um, the, the produce. And um, yeah, I think a lot of it is just like connecting to one another and kind of like what you, what you were saying, just like being grat- grateful and thinking of all the hands that have touched the food um, and, and ha- how it's like kind of come to light. And um, I'm trying to think of anything else. And, and I think a lot of it, like a lot of times, like I feel like there's like a, a big sense of like white guilt that goes around in, in terms of these conversations. And um, I think there, there, there's a lot of like internal work and like thinking about how, like, but, but there's a lot of internal work and, and white guilt that often comes up in these kinds of conversations. And it's really difficult to kind of work through, like separate those feelings versus like w- what you want to do. And I think something that, that helps is just understanding that, you know, we all make make mistakes and we all, we don't really get to choose where we come from, but we can choose how we move forward and yeah. how we can make things right. And I think just kind of emphasizing like solidarity, that's, that's a lot of like the way I see it is just like, um, you know, we, we may have different experiences, different upbringings, different beliefs, but as long as we're like hold like these core values of, you know, honesty, respect, justice, uh, we can move forward and really make a, a decolonized anti-racist place. And anti-racism is hard because we live in a really, really toxic and um, hard society that is real racist. Like, yeah, so, it's systemic. So, yeah, a lot of people don't realize it. I I'm, have come to realize myself just how how um, kind of omnipresent it is. It's just always running in the background. You know, white supremacy is this thing that is happening around us, and it is indoctrinated so many of us in ways that we don't realize. So I completely agree that you know, for white people who are listening to do personal anti-racism work, Antrice and I are both reading the book um, "Me and White Supremacy" by Layla Afsad, and it is so transformative so such a helpful tool so any you know personal education and the other thing that it reminded me of when you were speaking was um it's not our fault but it is our responsibility mm-hmm. you know so for the for for everybody who's coming to the table now to to create a new conversation and a new world together as we co-create you know it it's it's good to release the guilt and shame that might come up feel the feelings process and let it go it is still our responsibility to shape our future. And I said this too, like something that kind of came to me last year when the whole Black Lives Matter like exploded and that's, I guess the best way to say it was that, cause there was a lot of shame and I, w- I was so uncomfortable in feeling that shame. And I'm like, oh no, like this means that I'm feeling it. And obviously reading the book, I'm understanding like, de- like I'm definitely, like I'm white, you know, like it's impossible not to be part of the system. Um, but I think what came to me was shame is actually such a powerful thing to feel because if you're not shameful, like sh- feeling shame basically means that you care, right? It's like, there's something there that doesn't sit right with you. And so being shameful is almost like the first step in healing and empowerment. It's like, well, I feel shame because I care and I care enough to want to change something. And so I think stepping out of shame and like really 
tapping into like, what does that look like? And now when I feel this way, okay, I've been open the door to like, there's something here. There's a way for me here to grow. And then you dive into the work and then you remind yourself of like, okay, I can do better. I can learn more. I can think differently about things. And as you go down that journey, that's when you start to feel empowered, but like trying to ignore the, the, the shame, it's just disempowerment. Cause you just like keeping yourself in the same spot. So I feel like shame is t- typically like known as a very, it's, it's a feeling we don't want to feel, right? Like we're trying to, to avoid feeling shameful because that, that's a bad feeling. But I think it's actually the opposite. It's really, it's really empowering because it means that you're on your way to growth and there's no better way to live your life. I would also kind of just emphasize, because um, something that comes up to me as we're talking about this topic, like I think it's a white person and Robin and I can speak for this. The first reaction of when you hear someone is like, oh, you know, we have to decolonize, we have to help black farmers get more space. And maybe the first thought you get is, how can I help? Um, but I think, I, Robin, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things I talk about in the book is this whole like white savior thing. It's mm-hmm. like, you don't need to step in and be the hero, like make them the heroes, right? Like, so that's what you said, like, how can you connect with these farmers and ask them questions? Like, hey, I love what you're doing. How can we help support your work? Like, don't be the, the white person who creates their own thing and then like trying to rate, like, you know, so like you don't have to be the hero. So I'm trying to say, um, but help make, people of color heroes of their own yeah absolutely and it doesn't always have to look like you know volunteering at a farm it can also be like instilling these these values into your children and being like you know i i want to i want to raise you anti-racist um anti-homophobic all that kind of things and um that that also is like really really powerful work i know um some, some folks in my community sometimes feel like, oh, like, I'm just a mother, like, I don't really do this stuff. And it's like, no, like, I see you doing so much work and um, shouting out moms and parents for really um, raising their kids the way that they, they wish they were raised. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much, the individual has such a profound impact if we just give ourselves that credit that, like, we have this ripple effect that can come out. And as parents, especially, I mean, I can just see it's such an opportunity to change, you know, what the legacy is that we pass down. So I'm very, very supportive of diversifying toys, diversifying books that, you know, you introduce to your kids, having a lot of representation and also having conversations. If you're watching shows with your kids and you see something, it doesn't, I don't think you necessarily have to stop watching the things that are available to you or that you're attracted to, but to talk to your kids and be like, do you notice how that family was portrayed that way? Not all families are like that, you know, and have those conversations where you, you kind of dissect what, you know, maybe Pixar thinks that you should see and, mm-hmm. and, and talk about it with your kids. Those conversations, like that's really where, it, where it all starts for us. So yeah, Absolutely. thank you. So one other question I would have for you is, I mean, it sounds like, you know, you, it just sounds like you are doing such incredible work and you are part of something that is so meaningful and beautiful you know, what would you say is a really meaningful and satisfying part of your work from your experience? Yeah, I think just being able to connect with community members and families, especially like some of my, my favorite memories from last season is, uh, you know, helping helping some families. With, there was one family that had, I think there was like four or five kids and they all came out being like, hey, like I have this, I've been growing this plant. Can I put this here? I was like, oh, I don't really know, know what kind of flower this is, but uh, maybe like putting it into a bigger plant would, would a bigger pot would make you feel better. And just like really feeding off their energy. Like, like kids are like so curious and so like committed. It's, it's really, um, 
I don't know, it really it was heightened my spirit and made me really, really happy to be supporting these kids in their journey. And before we dive into our rapid fire session, um, can you just leave us with like three hands-on things that people can do right away to start supporting this movement a lot more? Absolutely. So I would say looking into that reparations map that I mentioned, um, if you're able to buy this book, Farming While Black by Leah Penniman is really, really great. And third thing, um, trying, I want, I want to connect folks to their, their own local uh, community farm and garden and all of that. So try and find like one place where you can donate or dedicate uh, a couple hours or like a couple bucks to them. Awesome. Yeah, they're great. Ah, oh, it's been such an incredible experience to have you on the show. You're such a just huge light and seeing you and talking to you, I feel just empowered and inspired. I'm, I, I'm longing for summer now so I can get dirty again, <laughs> just like start getting my hands down to the dirt. Um, are you, are you ready for your rapid fire session? Yes, absolutely. Right. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. So here's number one, fill in the blank. I believe in a positive future because the children are so powerful and magical. Morning bird or night owl? Night owl. Oh, you too. <laughs> <laughs> a farmer can be a night owl? It, it's, it's really hard uh, because there are definitely days where it's like, oh, I need to be up, up by like 6 a.m. so I can be at the farm by 7. And I, I struggle with those days. <laughs> but, but I try and like drink some chamomile tea and then be like, all right, no, no screen time and let's, let's go to bed. <laughs> I like it's dedication. It's great. Um, what's a favorite quote? Oh, um, there is one, I think it's Angela Davis, where she, and I'm going to butcher it, but um, I'm, I'm something like, I'm, I'm not, accept I'm accepting the things I can't change and changing the things I can't accept. I think that's it. I love that quote. Such a good Yes. One. Okay. What's a book you've read that really stuck with you? Um, Love and Struggle by G David Gilbert, I think, it's, or Gilbert. Um, it's about his, his time in the Weather Underground and um, a couple other organizations that he was a part of and kind of reflecting about, oh, these are the things that I, I didn't know that I wish I knew in terms of organizing. What is a mantra or a phrase that you repeat to yourself? Oftentimes, I feel very overwhelmed with the number of tasks I have to do. So just repeating to myself, you know, we get through this and we get like a five minute break is, is something that really keeps me going. One nice. step at a time. I love that. Yep. If you could instill one change in the world right now, what would it be? Um, what would it be? I think instilling composting in like all cities would be like really powerful. Yes. Totally. Amen to that. That's kind of like my secret answer when I read these. I'm always like, compost. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm really grateful to live in Ontario right now where we have um, province-wide composting. Oh yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, something that you're letting go of. I am letting go of, um, second guessing myself and not thinking I'm enough. Yes. Let go of that imposter syndrome. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that something that you are inviting more of. I'm inviting more, uh, support and help from loved ones. I have a hard time letting folks know like, hey, I'm struggling, I need help. And um, a lot of folks on my campaign team have been like really um, 
like intuitive and just like asking if I need support and uh, providing like really, really, I, I live alone. So providing really nice, like home cooked meals has been like really great. Receiving that love is so important. You know, it's, yeah. it's hard, especially to someone who's used to give all the time, mm-hmm. but it needs to be a balance of giving and receiving. So it's really powerful. Absolutely. A message that you want people to hear. Oh, I feel like we, we gave so many already. I mean, <laughs> um, I want people to hear that you can make a difference no matter how small, even if it's like 10 hours a year or whatever it is, um, whatever you, you feel drawn to, you should follow that. Yes. Love that. And number 10, what does being an optimist in action mean to you? Optimist in action. I think I'm a similar thread where it's like, you know, just doing like a small little step um, and, and really just like honoring your body to being able to like provide that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's really optimistic to me. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kiana. This has been so lovely. And I hope I can come visit your farm sometime, maybe, maybe this summer, depending yes. on how Yes, we'd love that. We have plenty of volunteer opportunities that will be coming up and uh, we would love to have you on the farm. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for sharing your heart with us today. This has been such an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Hey Change podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please share this episode with friends, family, or someone in your network. Also, don't forget to give it five stars in the app so that we can reach more listeners just like you. We love hearing from our listeners, so please tag us when you share this episode on social media. We'd love to connect with you and learn about what you are doing too. You can find where to reach us in the show notes. Before you go, we'd like to invite you to pause and to leave you with this one final question. What does being an optimist in action mean to you?